Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May 22nd, 2014. This is episode 1352 of the Survival Podcast, and I've got a great one for you today. I've got Chris, the angry American, author of Going Home and the survival series of books that that book is the first uh, book of. Uh, he's got a lot to talk to us about today. Some stuff just about what's going on in America, our thoughts on that, the teacup generation, new books that will be coming out, what's gone on since, and some interesting news that he has about, uh, uh, we call it reality or non-reality TV, and something that might be coming up with that, and uh, his involvement with Conflicted the Game. We'll have all of that for you in just a bit. Before I do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Harvest Eating, the illustrious, awesome chef Keith Snow, who will teach you how to make cooking into a life skill. If you don't think cooking is a prepper skill and a survival skill, well, then unlike me, you have uh, never lived on MREs for a period of about six months. I did, and I can tell you. It gets old really quick, and you get pretty creative. Well, the time to be creative with how to prepare meals is before you need to, not after you need to do it. Chef Keith will help you enhance your life on a daily basis by cooking seasonally and locally. His website, Harvest Eating, is a plethora of information. He has a wonderful podcast over there, an awesome YouTube channel. Check him out today, harvesteating.com. Next up today, Western Botanicals. Hey, look, I'll tell you what. I think there's times when you need a doctor. Recently, I had to take my wife to a doctor. I, I get modern medicine. I really do. And I am grateful for a lot of what it can do. But I also think that it's far overused today and that there's many things we can do to enhance the quality of our lives, reduce illness and disease through the use of gentle herbal remedies. And the place I go when I'm looking for something is Western Botanicals. Western Botanicals has a staff of real people who really care about you. If you need help figuring out how to order from them or anything like that, get on their website, westernbotanicals.com. Give them a phone call. They'll help you out. They're also an ardent supporter of the member support brigade, folks, big time. How about this? They have a uh, premium membership program. It's 50 bucks a year. And you, uh, you join that and you get 25% discounts on everything that you order. And if you use a lot of herbals like we do, man, that pays for itself. How'd you like it for free? How about this? All members of the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade get their preferred membership from Western Botanicals for the first year free. And if you decide you want to uh, renew it after the first year and keep using it, you pay half price for it. I mean, that's just amazing that they provide that kind of support for the MSB and for this audience. They've been sponsors with us now for about four years. Uh, they are the place I go to for all my herbal needs. I know everything I get there is either going to be organically grown or wild-crafted. Check them out today, westernbotanicals.com. Next up, let's, uh, let's real quick want to remind you guys about the member support brigade that I just mentioned. Harvest Eating and Western Botanicals both do things for you if you're an MSB member. There's discounts from 44 other vendors, and hey, the permaculture or the, uh, the, the perma ethos PDC is going to be released tomorrow, noon central time to MSB members. Not to everybody. MSB members will have the whole weekend to sign up and then whatever's left will release to anybody else, uh, after the weekend is over. Um, that is assuming no technical disasters between now and noon on, uh, on Friday. Uh, but, uh, that's just one reason to join the MSB. Discounts to over 40 vendors. 
$200 plus worth of free ebooks the day you sign up, all ready to be downloaded. And you download them, you keep them forever. Uh, and supporting the show at 18.3 cents an episode, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service. And first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all of you guys do qualify for a discount. If you email me with subject, uh, the subject service discount before, not after you join, send the email to jack at the survival podcast.com. One or two sentences telling me about your service, and I'll get you that discount code back again before, not after you join. With that, let's talk about the, uh, the year that was the episode. 1352. In the year 1352, according to Alex Shrugged over at TSP Wiki, we have the foundations of a direct democracy. The cantons of Zug and Glarus join the confederation known today as Switzerland. Next year, Bern will join. Once they throw off the control of the Habsburgs, they will institute a direct democracy. One man, one vote on everything. If a proposal fails, it can be brought up again in individual cantons. One canton will even institute a small fine for shirkers. Voting is done annually in a large plaza where everyone can hear and speak. As their population gets larger, the practice will be modified until only one modern-day canton will remain a direct democracy in the old style. That canton is gloss. While it hasn't started a direct democracy yet, when it gets going, it's going to last. My take by Alex Shrug, who puts these together, direct democracy is tricky because it requires a mature, reasonably well-informed voter base Better informed than the United States Congress. I like that little dig. And a reasonably homogenous group with similar goals. In small groups, it works great, but the tyranny of the majority can leave minorities without a voice. Recently, Switzerland's voters rejected by wide margins a national minimum wage of $24.64 in U.S. dollars. The current minimum wage is, there is none. Unions, private individuals, and companies negotiate a wage people can live with. Bottom line, the Swiss don't want the government to fix something that's already working. Well, good for the Swiss. Yeah, direct democracy is really challenging. Um, it's, it's challenging, but it doesn't necessitate the trampling of the minority by the majority. You can have a society where every individual has one vote for everything, and the majority carries the day in the vote if you had a strong individual rights-based constitution protecting the rights of the individual. In other words, it would be impossible for the majority to decide that, you know, Jack Spierko can't talk on TSP anymore if you had a very firm and clearly understandable Bill of Rights that said that Jack Spierko had the right to free speech. You didn't have to listen to it, but uh, you can't make him not say it. So it could work, but it's very, and the bigger the group gets, the more complicated it is. And it works best in what we had here, the Swiss Confederacy. See, a confederacy has its member states or cantons or districts or whatever, all with sovereignty. And then you have freedom of movement within the confederacy, kind of like a republic. So that means if Canton A does something really, really stupid, that its best and brightest might leave and go to Canton B and leave the majority behind to wallow in the mess that they've made for themselves. This necessitates... Actual responsibility. But in the end, it doesn't matter what kind of government you have. If they have the power to tax, and eventually they grow to a point where they're a problem, and I'm sure they're a problem in Switzerland just like they are in the United States of America. Again, my view of taxation is that the people in power today, if they were responsible in any way, would view tax dollars like 
the organs of people who died in car crashes. You want to make the best use of them, but your goal really should be to eliminate the need for them as a total and the fact that they're showing up in the first place by making sure that people are you know, not dying when they are not ready to die yet. Because um, I do consider tax theft at the point of a gun through the use of force. So I'd prefer to see no government as we think of it in modern terms at all. But I do think direct democracy has a place. It just has a place in amongst people that freely assemble with each other that do not infringe on the rights of others. So I think direct democracy works in groups where people say, well, we're assembled to accomplish X, and anybody that want to be here is free to leave. And we won't take from them or could, you know, force them to do anything or steal from them or whatever. So I think that, like, if you're running a church group, it works fine. Running a government, it leads down a very, very dangerous road. Doesn't mean the United States isn't a democracy, though, folks. It just means we're not a direct democracy. Um, we are a constitutional republic that elects our officials democratically. At least that's the promise, which makes us a type of a democracy. I know that upsets some of you, but when people get all upset about it, all they do is cut and paste a bunch of crap and never actually successfully argue against the concept that this country is, in fact, a type of a democracy. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of our show. I want to introduce to you Chris, the angry American. Uh, to talk about all kinds of stuff, and it's, uh, it's about time he got back on the show. We haven't talked to him for quite a while. Hey, Chris, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Good, Jack. Good. How you guys doing? We're doing great over here. Um, a lot of my audience is real familiar with you, either from uh, your books or from uh, previous interviews. But for those of you, those out there maybe have never heard you before or heard of you before, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, why, why a lot of us do know who you are? The books you've written and how, how you came about writing them and how you came up with the, uh, the monkier, uh, angry American. All right. Yeah. I'm the, the author of the, the Going Home series, um, which is now four books deep. Uh, the, the fourth one is called Forsaking Home, comes out June 24th. And, uh, so it's Going Home, um, Surviving Home, Escaping Home. And it's a EMP style event. It's never really clearly revealed in the books. It will be later in, in future books um, as to what caused it. Um, but it's you know the grid down scenario, which a lot of people like to talk about, and, and how folks deal with it. Um, there's also the twist in there of what the government's kind of doing, and it's not always in everybody's best interest. So that's that's the series. Uh, as for Angry American and the spelling of it, because I get this question a lot, it's not misspelled. It's spelled the way I wanted it spelled. Uh, <laughs> it's it, it's a um, it's a facetious use of the word angry. Um, so it's a n g e r y instead of a n g r y. And uh, and it's spelled that way on purpose. It's there's actually a definition for it in the Urban Dictionary, which is a being angry over trivial things. Which is kind of a turn to me because, you know, we're not angry over trivial things. You know, we've got a lot to be angry about. And people always say, well, what are you angry about? And I'm like, throw a dart. You'll hit something. Uh, there's plenty to be upset about in our country right now. Yeah, um, I, I agree. I think that uh, on a daily basis, I might become more and more angry or angry, depending on how you want to spell it. Yeah. Um, and I, I often am, am, am angry with my government, but I'm more often, more and more is like angry with the people who I think have created a government that is, whether people want to admit it or not, a reflection of the people. 
Um, I think a lot of us in the liberty movement would like to believe that the government is not a reflection of, of society. Uh, but if you go to any large city and start asking around, you'll find plenty of people that complain. But when you start saying, well, what about if we get rid of this or this or this or that? They're all like, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. We can't. Well, what exactly do you want to get rid of? And they don't really know other than whoever's not them they blame for the problem. Oh, yeah. it's it's They want to pit us against each other, and, and they don't want to get rid of the things that benefit them in most cases. Um, you know, ben, ben Franklin is often quoted as saying, you know – he was asked, you know, what kind of government do we have, a, a you know, democracy or republic? And, um, and he said a republic if we can keep it. You know, we, we, will, get, we will have the government we deserve, um, sadly, based on the majority. And, um, and right now that majority, in my opinion, is deserving of, of, of a horrendous government from the appearance of it. Um, you know, they're shoving unwanted, unconstitutional legislation down our throats. Um, and outright trying to silence any sort of opposition. Now you're not you, – you don't just have a differing opinion. You have a wrong opinion. You, know, you can't voice your opinion. If you, don't, if you don't like gays, you're not allowed to say you don't like gays anymore. It's, that's racism. It blew my mind the other day when I heard somebody say that saying I don't want to see two men kiss is racist. It's just – it's like Newspeak. You know, I, I talked about this the other day. It's like Newspeak now. They're changing the definition of words. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I could care less what two men do in their own private lives, and I am, I don't know, I guess you'd say I'm pro-gay rights because I'm not anti-gay rights. I, I mean, it just, to me, citizens are citizens, and we should all have the same rights in our republic, but... Uh, I don't necessarily want to see that either. And frankly, there's plenty of you know men and women that I really don't want to see kissing each other. I don't think that makes me racist in any way. It just means that that's not something that I want to see. Um, and I think the problem we have is twofold. One, we have people that say, oh, that's racist. And then we have the other problem with people that think just because you don't like something means that you shouldn't have to deal with it. And I think that's equally screwed up that we, we've got into this place. Uh, I know we're supposed to be talking about your books and all, but... This is an interesting discussion we've led into. It, I, I want to get your take on this. I just heard this on the radio yesterday, um, or maybe it was this morning, because I had to go pick up birds from the post office. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was this morning. And apparently now in college, and when this is not high school or grade school, this is college, they want something called a something warning. I can't remember what the term is now, but apparently it comes from feminist blogs. A trigger warning, okay, and it's for any book, you know, that might invoke some sort of bad, horrible, mean, or feelings of dread or sadness or something in the student reading it. For instance, Huckleberry Finn has undertones of racism in it, so if it's given as a literary assignment in college, it should come with a trigger warning because the student can't handle being upset. So there needs to be this blanket Trigger warning. Another book they mentioned was The Great Gatsby should come with a trigger warning because it has images of violence and sexualism in it. And this is for adults. And we're so we're getting to a point where we're trying to protect people from having anything upset them at all. Uh, and then we're creating the expectation that that's reasonable as well. Yeah, it's the absurdity of it. You know, and what you said about people having the right to do what they want. I, I, I'm with you there. I believe you should be free. And, and I don't, I don't prescribe 
to call myself an anarchist, but the more I think about it <laughs> going along, the, the more I kind of agree with the tenets of it. <laughs> you can believe whatever you want to believe, and you can do whatever you want to do as long as you're not bothering somebody else. And I don't care. Um, yeah. I, you know, feel free. Do what you want to do. But I have my right to say I don't like it, and I Correct. have the right to voice my opinion. Now, I don't have the right to interfere with what you're doing. No. I should leave you alone. But – but going back to what you said, I read something this morning on Drudge that goes right along with this, with, with what you've always talked about, the, the teacup generation, where parents are hiring coaches to teach their kids to ride bikes. They're hiring a coach and paying somebody money to teach their kids to ride a bicycle. I, at times, wish this show had a video feed, because if you could have seen my face when you said that, <laughs> it would have been worth anything I could say <laughs> As a follow-up, I mean, when I was a kid, you learned how to ride a bike this way. You got a bike, maybe they threw training wheels on the damn thing for you. You tooled around on a little bit. One day, Dad came out, yanked the training wheels off, plopped your butt on it, and pushed you off, and you fell on your knee, and you skinned your knee, and he said, get up, and you did it again. And, you know, within 10, 15 minutes, most kids are able to wobbly ride a bike, and within a couple of days, they're cruising around. So now we need a bike coach. Yeah, we need a bike And my old man did the exact same thing. I remember the day the training wheels came off, and he grabs a hold of the handlebar and grabs under the seat there, and he gets me going down the – we had a we had a dirt driveway, thank God. But he gets me at a pretty good clip, and then let's go. And he's like, ride it. Yeah. And I did exactly what you said. I ate dirt. You know, and, <laughs> and he's like, get up. Do it again, you know. Do it again. <laughs> I actually, with my son, this is an aside, but it's a great way to teach kids to ride the bike, right? So what you do is you set the training wheels on the bike so that it, there's never a time where both of them are touching the street. Yep. So as they fall to one side, they get caught. They fall to the other side, to get caught. And they end up riding where the wheels are never touching. And by the time you take them off, they know how to ride. But we certainly don't need a coach to figure that out. We need parents to stop thinking their children need to be wrapped in plastic and foam. Well, and, and what's it say about the parents that you know they're, they're, they think they can't teach it or they don't want to be involved? I, I didn't read the whole article. I, I started to, and I'm finally the, my head hurt, and I had to just stop. Right. But the, they don't want to be involved. I'm googling in the, it because I don't think it's a real thing. I think dude, it's, <laughs> let me look up Drudge again. I think it was on Drudge this morning where I saw it. It was on Drudge. It'll. Oh my God! It's real. I told you, <laughs> it blew my mind, man. I'm the exact moment. You, United, you it's in the Washington Times. Even the and even the Washington Times has a negative opinion of it. The headline is the exact moment the U.S. gave up. Coach is hired to teach bike riding. <laughs> well, um, that, that yeah, headline. Even... Think of my one of my favorite memes going around the internet is this. You've probably seen it. This kid's on a big wheel. And he's like flying through the air, and he's about to just bust his ass. Yeah. And his brother or whatever sitting on the ground watching. And you can tell just by the shorts the kids are wearing. It's the seventies, and it's like no helmets, no nagging soccer moms. This is how we rolled in the seventies or something like that. And I just think back to my childhood and think it wasn't that long ago. What the hell happened? Yeah, yeah. You know, I can remember as a kid. I lived we, for a short while when I was very young. We lived in downtown Orlando in a in a little crappy duplex house. And I mean, right by Lake Eola, downtown Orlando. And I remember as a kid, I wasn't afraid, and I was allowed to wander around. I could walk over to Lake Eola. I could move around the area, and there were no worries. For several years, I lived in downtown with my family, not far from that very area. I wouldn't let my kids out of the yard alone. I wouldn't let them, because of not because I'm a teacup dad and worried about them, but because of the predators in society. Mm-hmm. And what, what's kind of disturbing about the Washington Times headline there is the moment America gave up. 
it's, it's funny there's that something they to that, that though. Well, is but think about it. It's odd that they picked that as the moment we gave up. Yeah. <laughs> of all the things they could hang a headline like that on, they picked this one, which is it is absurd. But that's kind of a statement in of itself to me. So. I just, but Max's story, the kid, in the, it ended happily. He finally learned how to ride his bike. It sounds like a bad children's book. Um, my <laughs> theory on all of this is that it isn't the children that can't handle failure. It's the parents that can't handle failure. That's why we have this. These kids did not set up their own Easter egg hunts where the eggs are put out on a parking lot. None of them are hidden. These kids did not ask for a bicycle coach. I, this kid probably asked Daddy to teach him a hundred times. Uh, and for whatever reason, Dad didn't have time to. Um, it is parents who have changed. It is not children. Oh no, you're you're absolutely right. And and society at large. Of well, now the children have changed because we have a whole generation of them. That, but but what I'm saying is the change did not occur because the children became weak. The children became weak because the parents changed. Yeah, it started there. You know, it's that whole chicken and egg thing. You, you know, you got to have the chicken for you can have an egg, and you got to have a parent for you can have a kid. So it's top down for sure. And the, the concern with that for us in the in the preparedness community is what happens to all these kids and now young adults if we end up in any kind of a true scenario that we prepare for? I mean, I can't see the children of today even getting through what happened not in Europe but in the United States with rationing and, and, and certain requirements during World War II. Oh, I yeah, yeah. And we were up, spared, you know, man. I mean, we have to admit it. We got off easy in World War II compared to the rest of the world. Oh, absolutely. But imagine imagine kids today being asked to go out and collect scrap metal for, for a scrap metal drive. And you don't get paid? Yeah, it, no, yeah you exactly. You don't get paid. This is to help the people overseas. Yeah, yeah. Or, or to or, turn in old clothes, or or, or or to collect rags. You remember the in the in the forties, you know, they, they collected rags to to reuse stuff for all kinds of stuff. And our kids today would be like, collect rags. There was rationing on stockings because of the need for elastic. And yeah, the nylon had had more uses, or much more important uses than for ladies' legs to look nice. Correct. And there was like my grandmother told me. There were certain parts of the country where they were afraid of actually, you know, having bombs from planes getting being able to eventually get close up and bomb the country that cars had the tops of their headlights painted black so yep. only half the headlight produced light to, to lower the light signature and i you know it, i could just see kids today being told you have to comply with these things and saying it's not fair when the whole world's at war and, yeah. and, and let's face it like i said we got off easy i mean if you could have chosen between living in let's say Nebraska, and I don't really want to live in Nebraska, no offense to anybody there, but Nebraska or England in yeah. World War II, you take Nebraska every day. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Even if you weren't under the Blitz, I mean, just the living conditions in England with rationing were so much stricter. And, I, I, you know, let's kind of move into your books a bit, because your books talk about having to deal with the far worse scenario. Everything's shut down, basically. Yeah, and, and in, in, in the books... Um for the first, well, not the first one, but the second two, um, I deal with, even the third one, actually, um, I deal with uh, a lot about the, the teenage daughters in the book. And mm. one of them in particular has a really hard time dealing with this. As far as she's concerned, life is over. Mm. You know, the Internet's gone. High school's gone. Her friends are gone. And life's over. There's nothing, nothing worth living for. And, you know, and it's never coming back. And this is horrible, you know. Um, 
and and so I, I go into that there to to try to address a little bit of how the younger generations among us are, are going to have a hard time dealing with it. Because um, I think in the event, you know, I mean, look at what happens during a, even a hurricane. You know, look up in the Northeast that one that come through up there, how those people acted. You know, they had to wait in line for gas. Oh my God! You know, and they're rationing gas. Can you believe I'm only going to get five gallons? This is absurd, and. They don't think in, – in those events, uh, you know, not to say the greater good is the way we need to live, but in a crisis situation, we kind of have to think that way. Absolutely. Which is, which is why we prepare so that we're not in those damn lines. But when you don't prepare and you find yourself in that line, you should be kind of happy for what you're getting you know, and not mad that you're being limited in what you can get. You know? well, the most, the most uh, impactful thing to me about Hurricane Sandy – was the places where people weren't pushed out of their homes. They maybe didn't have power, but they still had a house. Their roof wasn't gone. Streets might have been a little flooded here and there, but it wasn't completely flooded. And within 48 hours, they were dumpster diving for food. Oh, absolutely. Which, yeah. And these were not poor people. These were upper middle class people dumpster diving for food because there was no place to go buy it, which meant they didn't have enough to exist with. For two days, you have to be pretty hungry to start eating food out of the garbage. I would say you got to go at least a day without a meal, right, before you're willing to do that. At I, least a day, which means if they now. went in two days, they had one day's worth of food at best in their homes. And, and this is the makings of a complete catastrophe in certain scenarios. And these people were freaking out. And the thing about Hurricane Sandy was, I'm not putting anybody down that's been through some of the, the bad parts of it, and I understand what a massive disaster it was, but it was a disaster that everybody impacted by it knew if you ain't dead, there is better times coming. We will get through this. We'll get past it. And most of, not all, but most of the people didn't lose their home, whatever, and, and they had minor damage, and they just needed to get through a week or two of being inconvenienced. What you're talking about in your book with these girls dealing with, everything really is gone. And if yeah. you can't handle, like, you can't go to 7-Eleven for a week, what are you going to do when you your, your life as you know it has been derailed, let's say, even for six months? Yeah, yeah. well, one of the, one of the little things I use in the book, I, I talk about what, the day they run out of toilet paper. And, uh, and, and there's, there's a large group of women in this book. There's a lot of female characters, um, you know, wives and daughters and stuff, and um, – and as a group, they're sitting around. The, you know, the, the the women are like, well, you know, we've got a problem. And you know, he's like, well, what's that? They're like, well, we're almost out of toilet paper. We, you know, it's almost gone. And uh, and he's like, oh, well, I have a solution for that. And he goes into it, and I don't want to, I don't want to give it away. But uh, he goes into a solution, and the solution is is very very viable, very workable, very sanitary. But yeah. it's not the norm that we're accustomed to. And they were like, oh, you got to be kidding me. We're not doing that. Well, then you can hold it. Well, or, or, you know, well, well, then just hold it in and see how long that works. You can convert to Islam and use your right hand, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, because that's another thing, too. In, in there, we deal with uh, the little girl. There's there's like a nine year old little girl in the book and and they're out doing something one time. And she's like, well, I got to go to the bathroom. And, you know, and, and dad's like, well, you know, let's go out in the woods and we'll find you a spot. And you go to the bathroom. I'm not going out in the woods. You know, he's like, well, what do you think you're going to do? Well, I'll hold it. Yeah, not forever you won't. <laughs> okay, that's, you know, even though that is a, a realistic thing that could happen there, 
in a, in a real bad situation, there's actually a lesson in day-to-day life for parents there. That's not a fight to have with the kid. The solution will present itself eventually. Oh, yeah. The, yeah and I think a lot of this teacup crap is because, like, we, well, he won't eat his dinner. Well, don't give him any other food. Well, then he'll go hungry. Uh-huh. And then he'll eat. And yeah, because right up until my kid was a picky anymore. eater, Chris, and this is this was my I, – I should write a book on, like, parenting. And it's called the top of the refrigerator method. So if you don't want your dinner, the dinner goes on top of the refrigerator. The kid just looks at it like, what the heck's that? You're like, when you're hungry, you'll eat it. It'll be cold. I need it now so it's not cold. Well, I'm not ever going to eat it. Well, then you're not getting anything to eat tonight. Yeah. And the, the time that that came off of there was when he was ready to eat it or in the morning when he would get breakfast. And if you don't want what's for breakfast, guess where it goes? Yeah. Top of the refrigerator. <laughs> it takes refrigerator. one day to cure this shit. Yeah. One day of being willing to let them be hungry. They're not going to die. No. Right? And if the kid says, I'm not going to go crap in the woods, well, eventually you're going to crap, and you'll figure out what to do when you do. And and I think that it's great that you have stuff like that that's you know written into this post-apocalyptic world, but can actually be gleaned back out and say, hey, you know what? Maybe that's probably a better way to deal with stuff. Yeah, and, you know, while while the books are set in a, like I said, an EMP kind of thing, I only used that because I wanted it as bad as it could get. Sure. I wanted everything kind of be taken away. Now, there's still some things there, and I get a lot of questions. Well, how come this still works? How come that still works, you know? Well, because it would. It's, and it's fiction. Yeah, a lot yeah. of stuff. Like I had a guy, you know, ask me the other night, well, how come flashlights still work, you know, on Facebook? And I said... You know, you guys need to understand how EMP works. It's a yeah, it's flashlights a, would still work. It's a cumulative thing, you know. Yeah. It's it's you know. So anyway, a lot of people don't get it, but especially in the, I'm writing another one now, and in the the fifth book that I'm writing now, it's, it's all about the day to day survival when everything's gone. There are no more preps. Everything we've stored has been used up because in this kind of an event, no matter how well prepared we are, eventually it's all going to be gone. And now what do you do? Well, that's where you have to move into uh, a, an old world style of life where you actually start producing again. Exactly. You know, I think exactly. that's, that's something a lot of people have a hard time grasping. I, that's why I put so much emphasis on that type of lifestyle now. Right. I, th- what I've always tried to say is what we're trying to do in some ways is begin the rebuilding before the collapse this time around, which I don't know that's ever been done before, but... <laughs> We some of the things we may face in the future, it, it may be necessary. I think the most likely major catastrophe that we will see, and it's not as bad technically as uh, an EMP or an EMP type event, is an economic collapse. But boy, you talk about disrupting the the, the lives of some teacups. You know, when when a Ben Franklin buys you nothing, yeah, you you got a problem. Yeah, you know, and. And and people say, well, an economic collapse, yeah, that'll be bad. You know, you won't be able to buy much. Well, they don't extrapolate that out and think about it. No. How do you think the utility company is going to leave your lights on if you're not paying your bill with, you know, $10,000 a month or whatever it's, it is at the current inflation rate? You know. Well, or the other thing is, what will that – so if you have an economic collapse – what that means is the economy stops functioning. And people say, well, of course it does. Well, what does that mean? How many goods and services stop being produced, at least at the quantity necessary to make life bearable and livable and happy? And then once that cascade failure and, and services start to fail, 
what comes next? You get problems with sanitation. Well, what comes after that? Illness and disease, which worse it's a it's a it's a death spiral. And I don't think it'll be you know to to mention one of your contemporaries as as a writer like James Rawls's version where one day everything's pretty much okay and the next day it's it's Weimar Germany you know after their collapse i think that it's it's a long spinning death spiral and i think a lot more people are going to get hurt by it because it's like being boiled slowly in the pot by the time you figure out the water's hot you can't get out yeah, yeah. i think as a modern example argentina is going to be the best place to look to see what could happen here but but you know compound it yeah it'll, it'll obviously be worse we're not here argentina we're everybody right exactly I mean, you know when what happened in argentina was horrible for those people and they lived through some bad times and, and you know you can read um furful stuff to, to get an idea of what happened down there um but you bring that here to a class of people that are used to instant gratification for yeah. whatever it is be yep. it be it flipping on a light switch, be it whatever it is, and you start that process here. You know, you were talking about Hurricane Sandy earlier and, and how those people knew help was coming. They also knew the hurricane was coming and didn't do anything and didn't do a damn thing for yep. it. Yep. When the signs present themselves for something catastrophic like an economic collapse, which there'll be signs, some of us will see them. Some people are going to ha- stick their heads in the sand. Imagine what's going to happen when they're caught off guard like that. With, I mean, in that event, and how bad that's going to be, and how bad it's going to affect them, and and well, people who with, you know, I've got a net worth of you know one and a half million dollars, I don't have any cash, and by cash I mean real money, yeah, and I don't have any food stocked, I don't have any because I, you know, I live on credit cards, and American Express, and you know I'm mortgaged to the hilt, and and when when the reality slams into those people, they're going to be in a world of hurt. We also have something that Argentina never did. And that is we have a very well-armed, well-organized gang culture. Oh, yeah. And it's it's much bigger than the average American comprehends. And the reason it's bigger than the average American comprehends is gangs, for all the talk, don't cause anywhere near as much trouble as they could because they are mostly an economic unit. And if you're running an economic unit, you need customers. And in this case, it's mostly drugs. So the gangs are selling drugs, and they have a market which to sell to, and it's a lot of times it's the middle classes, you know, yuppies, kids at their school, maybe not directly, but they're part of that whole supply chain. Now, if you have an economic collapse, you're going to have all industries suffer, and now you've got people that are fiercely loyal to each other, that have a hierarchical structure, and that are already organized, because what we've learned about this type of thing from what happened in the Balkans um, over there is that you had to immediately work with other people or you were sunk. Well, the people that are in these gangs are already maneuvered into that position, and they, they are fiercely loyal to each other. And whether you, you know, I, I, don't know, I don't want to make it like a glorified thing, but you do have to have some level of respect and admiration for the loyalty they show each other. Oh, absolutely, and and they could be the the rise of the warlord style thing. Yeah, you know, and and another thing too, when you when you think about that economic collapse, you think about Argentina, you got to look at the government response and what they did there. Yeah, when you said yeah. gangs, yeah. the first thing that popped into my head was the uniform gangs employed by the federal government. Yeah, the, yeah. See, the, the, the the issue here we have though is, I'll tell you right now that if every gang member 
of, let's say, the Latin kings in Chicago that's armed decided right now to take over Chicago, Chicago PD is effed. Oh, yeah. They could not handle the numbers alone and the willingness. You know, they don't have rules of engagement. Right. That one place that is a powder keg in of itself. Uh, you could say the same thing about some of the gangs in, in, in South Los Angeles um, during the Rodney King riots. The, the the news media says that the LAPD was pushed to its breaking point when I had Frank Sharp Jr. on who actually worked with some of these guys in coming up with a new plan as part of their, you know, their strategic planning for the future. He said they weren't to their breaking. They were broke. Yeah, it was broken. It was done. The only reason that it didn't go any further is because the people that were aggressing didn't take it any further. And frankly, because a lot of Koreans that owned, you know, things like uh, dry cleaners and donut shops decided they had enough of this shit and it took SKs and AKs up on the roof. Yeah. And if it wasn't for that, it would have completely come unglued. And if you remember the state of the, the mentality of law enforcement in the country, there was a fear that if the wrong response was elicited, the next thing you would see Atlanta, Chicago, Cleveland, Dallas, et cetera, and it would powder keg all over the country. And yeah, they, they, they tried to they they tried to moderate the response um to not become overtly violent. You know, we didn't see the, the riot police put out. I don't think that would hold today, though. With, no, I think with, with what happened the, in Boston and stuff, I think the government and the law enforcement in particular, and I'm not anti-law enforcement, at least, but I work with law enforcement on a daily basis. Um, but they've taken a much sterner approach to things these days. You know, the, the search for those guys, the Zaniyev brothers after the bombing, um, you know, going in and forcibly removing people from their houses without, you know, no warrants, nothing, searching homes. Um, that was a step over the line and, and in my my opinion, a litmus test to see if people take it, you know, and, and they beat on your door and pointed guns at you, made you come out in the yard. They searched you. They searched your home. And people say, well, you know, in that situation, we needed to do that. No, no. No, there's we never, didn't. There's never a situation. In the numbers, it was done in. I mean, if I have reason to believe you've got the guy in there and he might escape while I'm trying to get a warrant, I've got reasonable cause, and I think you're bullshitting me, that's one thing. But when we just wholesale going, we're going to just go through this whole neighborhood. Exactly. That, I mean, what you're, what you're saying at that point is that the average citizen would hide a person like that in the first place. Yeah. Well, it's the, it's the us and them, it's the, which goes back to what I was saying about the uniform gangs. I think a government response to... Mass unrest here in this country would be far worse than what we've seen in other countries. I think. Oh, definitely. I, I think our government right now, and I'm not just saying the current administration. I'm saying our government. I understand. Would be far more willing to use deadly force against groups of people um, than other governments would. And I, and I think that's a. I think that's a really stupid position for them to. To be in and to think that way, but they're you know I think they're putting the tests out there. They're running the feelers to see, you know, uh, you know. Look at the well, and there's this misguided belief among the citizenry, especially in the liberty community. They say, well, you know, U.S. troops won't fire on 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 U.S. civilians. And I remember I was I was in Montana at an event, and there was a guy that I was talking to who was just out of the Marine Corps, and I'm you know I'm prior service Army. And when the one person said that exact quote, we just looked at each other. 
and no one said anything, but you understood immediately what each of us were thinking, like, oh, my God, they don't understand at all. Because what you what what that person is envisioning and the reality are two different things. So what they're envisioning is there's a bunch of people out in the streets with signs saying, give us back our 401k or something. And then the military is just told, go kill them all. And, 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 and then they won't fire. Well, I don't think they would either. But arson, murder, robbery, theft, vandalism. I mean, these are serious criminal activities. And if that type of thing is going on, on some level, you need a forceful response, and you need it quick. But what happens inevitably in those situations is a spiral to where everybody's the enemy. And a lot of, I think, of our, our, our troops and our law enforcement officials in those situations will believe they're doing the right thing because part of what they're doing will be the right thing, and it will get very gray very fast, and then people get into a point where it's an us-and-them mentality like you're talking about, and all bets are off. Right, so, and, the, and the first time those those forces, be they military forces or law enforcement figures or whatever, take fire from the civilians. Because mm-hmm. we know there's, there's, there's people among even our community that are itching for the day that they can do that. Sadly, that's true. And there were people at that that ranch thing. That what's the name of the guy in uh, Bundy? Yeah, Bundy Ranch. Yeah. They were interviewed after the fact and basically were saying, you know, things like, "Well, it's got to happen sometime." And they were they were wanting a Waco style showdown. Yeah, and and in the the instant the first bullet goes downrange at those guys, now they have a reason. It's not because they were told to. It's now because we're being shot at, and it's not for the policy at hand or because the government told me to. It's because these bastards are shooting at us now, and we're going to kill them first. Well, I'd shoot at you if you shot at me, and I like you. In a blink of an eye, dude. Right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and don't put it past if there are people that want it to happen that there might not be staged fire. I mean – it's happened on both sides throughout history. If you, if you go all the way back to the Boston Massacre, yeah. Um, as much as I'm glad that we threw the British out soon afterward, that was a clear baiting by separatists of uh, of uh, the, uh, the the British troops. Oh, it, it was designed to to do that. So that type of psychology gets played on both sides of the equation. Yeah, and and. So when people say, you know, that well they, they won't they won't do this, like you said, it's all about context. It, yep. And and that's what people don't understand. Like you said, I don't think that if uh there's a peaceful march and, and uh National Guard troops are brought out and their CEO stands up and says, All right, open up on the crowd, they're probably gonna be you know, I they're at the very least they're gonna hesitate and be like, Uh what? You want us to do what? They're not doing anything. Yeah. Um and and again, even in uniform, we've got, you know, sickos that they wouldn't hesitate. You know, hey, he told me to kill him. I'm going to kill them all. But the minute that it turns violent and the violence is aimed at them, that's going to justify their actions at that point. You know, it's self-defense. And it actually will. That's the thing that people don't get. It w- if somebody's trying to kill you, trying to kill them back is justified, right? Oh, In any rational person's mind, the most non-aggression principled libertarian says, until the point you do me harm. There's very few people other than maybe a few Buddhist monks or whatever that would sit there and be murdered and not respond in kind. Yeah, that's not me. It's not me either. Like I said, I like you, but if you try to kill me, your ass is dead. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's talk about uh, what's going on with Conflicted. Conflicted, the card game, has been a real hit with my audience. We do Conflicted Mondays now. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I hear them every Monday. 
Yeah, every Monday I read a scenario and we get you know thoughts on uh, you know what people would do, and I think it's an interesting game. But you've got something going on with those guys now, don't you? Yeah, JD uh, JD approached me, and we're in the process of putting a deck together now. Hopefully, it'll be out in the next I don't know about a month, probably maybe a little, little bit less, and we'll have a, a conflicted deck based off of my book series. So it'll be scenarios drawn from the books, you know, and uh, there'll be a, be a new game out pretty soon. I thought that was pretty neat when he came to me about it and uh, was all for doing it. So that's going to be pretty cool. I think it's an awesome way to combine two marketing, you know, forces, so to speak. And the, the, it'll be interesting, I think, for people that have read your books to, during the scenario, be able to go, oh, I remember when that happened, and, 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 and then actually be able to discuss not just the scenario, but, well, what would I do versus what happened in Chris's narrative? Yeah, because, you know, Morgan Carter, the main character, you know, he's, he's, some people like him, some people hate him, you know, he, but, you know, and it'll be cool for people to sit around and do that. I, I'm looking forward to getting them too, to, to go through those scenarios and rethink them now. Um, and I think it'll be a lot of fun because, uh, you know, a lot of the, I get a lot of email, a lot of uh, Facebook stuff and everything, things on my website from people that have read these books six, seven, eight times. You know what gets me when, when an author such as yourself has got these books coming out and people critique the decisions in the books as being, you know, like I wouldn't have done that. That was wrong. Well, wait a minute. The guy's writing a story, and you've got to get the character through, and you ain't writing, you know, um, a, a guidebook to do everything right. You, you, the guy has to make mistakes, or he's first of all, he's not real, and second of all, if 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 it made every single decision the right decision and everything worked, it'd be a pretty stupidly boring read. Oh, absolutely, and and I purposely do things that are controversial, sort of in the books. In in uh, in the second book, there's a scene where um, Morgan's neighbors are kind of some of his neighbors have decided they're going to start taking from from the other neighbors and from him. Um, and he confronts a big crowd, and the two ringleaders of it, or it's a husband and wife team, um, who are storming a house. And and he gets there, and 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 you know they, they've got him kind of quelled down, and and the husband of this team's like, well, you know, you're going to be looking over your shoulder for the rest of your life. And so he's standing in front of this whole crowd, and he's like, no, I'm not, and he just shoots the guy. <laughs> now, is that a reasonable reaction today? Absolutely not. And and people are all like, well, that was all BS. You shouldn't have done that. What was probably a little far was he also shoots the wife because she says the same thing. Uh, but now think about it, though. No, I know where you're going. It's I agree. It's post-apocalypse. It's the end of the world. Now you have somebody who lives right down the road from you that has plainly said, I'm going to kill you. And has killed other people. And, and, and you know, has the means to do it. You've got a wife and kids. Are you going to leave that threat alone and let them wander around the community where you live, foment dissent among other neighbors? And maybe next time you won't be able to put it down. Maybe next time they're not going to show up as just an angry mob. You know, you won't know until the bullets start flying. And so that's one of those things I stuck in there for kind of people to think about. Um, it would be a tough call for somebody to make. You know? It would be a tough call for somebody to make. And it's not necessarily that what, what your character did is the right decision or the best decision, but it is a decision exactly. that is more than probable to occur in that scenario. Oh, absolutely. You know, a lot of people say that, that they wouldn't do that, that you know, you'd have to be threatening my life. And I'm like, well, well he, he just did. did. He just did. Well, no, he, he, he said it. It's like even Penguin. When when I when I hooked up with Penguin Books, who's who publishes now my books, 
there was a scene in the first book. Uh, the first shooting that happens in the book is um, a group of black guys that confront him and basically tell him to give us your stuff. You know, give us your backpack, give us everything you got. And um, and there's he's outnumbered and he can see where this is going. So the main character takes the first move. He makes the first step and and draws a gun and and shoots one of these guys. Penguin said, "We can't, we can't do that." You can't do that in the book. And I said, why not? They're like, well, he hasn't done anything to him yet. And I'm like, yeah, he has. You know, he's, he's, it's, it, their intent is obvious. Anybody can see their intention. And they're like, yeah, well, but, you know, the, the guy hasn't done anything yet. You've got to have him do something to him first. Um, and I argued with him for quite a while about that. I'm like, you guys are thinking in the now. Well, and they're also society. thinking that the protagonist always has to be right. Because I'm sure if the antagonist in your story had done something like that, well, that's okay because he's the bad guy. Exactly, and and they always want the, the yeah they want the the protagonist to always look like the good guy. And I and I told him early on, I said, look, he's a he's an honorable kind of guy. He's a good he's a good guy. He he can be your best friend or your worst enemy, but he also makes some huge mistakes, some huge blunders. He does some stupid stupid things that can cause him problems because we're all gonna do stupid things. <laughs> Maybe not on a level that, that Morgan in the book does, but everybody's going to make a mistake that's going to put their life or their family's lives in jeopardy. I mean, and anybody who says that they've got their plan nailed down so airtight that there's no chance for Murphy to sneak in, you know, they need to step back into reality and, and, and take another look. Well, I don't want to hook up with that person because I'll tell you what, that overconfidence is going to lead to a problem. The overconfidence is just as deadly as ignorance, you know. So what's the future hold for your series? Any other books on the horizon? Are you, you doing work with other people? I mean, where's, where are things going for you next? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm writing the fifth book. So you know, we'll have the fourth book out in June. I'm writing a fifth one. Right now we're aiming for a December release, which would be nice. Um, Penguin is panicked over it to them. Two books in a year is like an unheard of thing, and they're freaking out. Um, and I actually talked to him yesterday telling them they wanted the fifth book that I'm doing now to be the last book in the series. And, and and talking to folks on Facebook and things, they've pretty much told me they don't want it to be the end yet. There's still a lot of story to tell. So I told Penguin yesterday, I talked to my publisher and said, uh, look, I'm gonna this will be the last book for you guys, but I'm gonna continue to release these. I'm gonna self keep self publishing them. And uh so after a long talk, they pretty much said, Well, let's see how this one goes and if, if they still want them, you know, we'll keep publishing them. But I'm also getting ready to do a um <clears throat> a pandemic style series, a little different turn on things. Um, not not a zombie book. We're not going to do no zombie books, but just a, a pandemic one to give uh, a different kind of storyline and something else for folks to read. Uh, I know that the the market for this genre is is pretty seriously underserved. Really, um, anybody that's out there thinking they could write a book or they'd like to write a book, my advice would be go for it and do it um, because people out there want more to read. You know. Yeah, I would more. agree with that completely. Yeah. And, uh, I have to admit, I don't read a lot in the genre because I get enough of it all day long every day. And I try to read completely, totally divested of this world stuff, at least before I go to bed, to disengage my mind. But the overall market is hungry for more. Oh, absolutely. Like I said, it's seriously – I mean, I could probably turn out four books a year and it still wouldn't be enough for people to be happy with. 
just just for just my audience. That's not everybody because not everybody reads my books. But for the audience I have now, I could probably do four books a year, and those guys wouldn't be happy. <laughs> I, I like where you're going with the pandemic thing because I I honestly believe that it is it might be a little more challenging of a storyline to to script because it it's not the scenario where everything doesn't work but it's also a very realistic possibility. I'm not going to say it's highly probable, but it's immensely possible that sooner or later we will deal with it. In fact, we're going to deal with some sort of global pandemic. The question is going to be when, where, how deadly, how contagious, you know, what death rate uh and the duration of the of the of the raging of the disease. But it, the answer to all of those could be really, really bad, and it, that's a, a high probability thing that we could deal with. Yeah, and, and society's response to it. Um, at, at what point, what would be the, the percentile of people that would need to be infected and, and in some cases killed or even just infected and stricken down to the point they can't function before we would really start to see impacts on society? And everything from excuse me, everything from the truck drivers to the utility plant operators, you know, the water plant guys. Well, I mean, the only solution, right, is quarantine. And 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 back to your comments about teacups earlier. How does the 16-year-old that's told you can't leave the house for two months respond? Yeah. Well, and what would that? Not fair. Think about that. It's not fair. Don't you understand? Yeah. It's not fair. My life is over. Well, think about that. Even if the government come out and said, "All right, we're everybody's quarantined. You have to stay in your home." Well, that's not going to work that well for long. We were just talking about those people there in Hurricane Sandy that two days after the hurricane were dumpster diving. Yeah. What's the government going to try to organize home delivery of food to an entire nation? It's, it's, it's all but impossible. Yeah. You'll have to have selective quarantines in selective areas at selective times, and that that means you have limited effect, and you'll have people that won't heed the quarantines just out of uh, of defiance and you'll have it out of necessity i mean if you, and, and when you give people the choice of starve or don't starve they'll take don't starve every time if you look at haiti and all the people that died of dysentery and diarrhea after the earthquake when they drank the water that was polluted they knew it was polluted and they knew it would make them sick but if you give a person dying of of uh, dehydration the choice between polluted water and no water, they'll drink the polluted water every single time. Yeah, absolutely. Because the survival instinct will kick in. And even though mentally I know this is a bad move, physically it's necessary this moment. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and when you're to that point, you're living for the moment. Mm-hmm. You know, and and back to the... To how the society would react. Imagine states, in particular some of the some of the flyover states, some of the western states, that maybe don't have cases yet. Could you imagine their national guards being posted at every road into their state, just to keep people out, turning everybody away, and 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 shooting people for trying to bust their barricade, for trying to run their blockade, and and then having to have what does come in go through special screening, slowing down supplies, and have people trying to get out at the same time. Exactly. And people that are like, I'm not trying to get into Nebraska. I'm trying to get through Nebraska and, and saying you can't stop me. I mean, there is there is all types of scenarios that I can see coming down with, you know, a serious disease pandemic. And the the reality is our stupidity in overuse of medications has actually made 
pandemic more likely versus less likely in modern times. Oh, absolutely. And then you throw, you throw in the wild card, which is the weaponized viruses that are all over the world in these labs that everybody's working on. Um, you know, we've had partial releases before in places. And if something like that was to get loose or to intentionally be set loose, um, that had a very high fatality rate, a fast incubation period, um, what that could do to, to, to the country or the world. I mean, you know, introduced into, say, an airport, just as an example, if you introduce something like that in, in, in you know, Heathrow Airport, it would spread around the globe in a day. In one day, something like that would spread around the globe. Absolutely, it would. And, and, it would, and I, I and think you will not get how true that is. Yeah, and it would be nearly impossible to stop at that point. I mean, you look at the you know the airports in the U.S. alone that have international flights, and you can start expanding out from there how it would spread. Um, and it would be fast. It would be incredibly fast. We're, we're very vulnerable in our modern society. It's a great, comfortable place to live, and I love it, but we are extremely vulnerable. Well, and the thing that's kept us alive from some very deadly diseases is how quickly they, they go deadly. Um, when you, if you get something with, let's say, the, the, uh, the time from infection to manifestation point of the flu, right? A, a right. long incub incubation period is what I'm looking for. Yeah. And th let's say the virulence and lethality of Ebola. If those two worlds collide, then you release that into Heathrow Airport and it's a one week, incubation period and it literally is everywhere and going back to patient zero at that point doesn't even matter because yeah. there is and, and what you're talking about with a release an intentional release there is no patient zero no you could like have four billion patient zeros of patient zeros yeah literally, you know um, yeah because you know it's gonna be well this the he got it here or 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 this 342 people that just flew out of Heathrow, you know, into JFK, yeah. patient zero, 342 of them that left the airport. Some con some caught connecting flights. Some got in cabs. Some got on the subway. You, you know, I mean, just think about how fast. Well, that well, think happens. about this, Chris. Would you release it in the gateway of all the people getting on the same plane behind all the security, or would you do it at the ticketing counter where everybody's going somewhere different? Oh, that's see, there you go. Well, or, or, or think about a terminal. Not wanting to yeah. give anything away, but think about a terminal. Incoming and outgoing flights. Yep. Incoming and outgoing flights. Plus everybody that goes anywhere, like, in the... Because I don't know about you, but if I have to fly somewhere, I'm not going to be late. Me neither. So I show up, like, they say an hour and a half early. I show up, like, two hours early. Yep. And after I get through security, what do you think I do? I got to have a beer. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then you're in a food service environment, and you're interacting with other people. And if there's someone sitting next to you that seems like a decent person, what do you do? You have a conversation. Yep. And then my wife goes to all the little gift shops and looks at all the crap and touches stuff, right? Yeah. So, so even when those people that have been exposed leave, you still have this exposure that's co like continuously cycling, and people come in, and they if you connect through an airport, you, you go into the terminal, and then you... Do all those things I just said. You get on a plane and go somewhere else. Yeah, so you, you, you imagine, uh, you know, s some older lady who's sitting at the terminal and she's reading her magazine or whatever it is, her book, and 
and, and you can picture this, and, and you'll, you'll know exactly what I'm saying when I, when I describe this to you. So she's sitting there reading her book, and, and what a lot of older gals do, I don't know why they do this, well, they, they lick their finger mm-hmm. and they go to turn the page. Okay. Well, and then, like you said, well, now she wants a soda. So she closes her book. She walks over. She's buying a soda. She hands the guy the money with the same fingers she's been licking on all afternoon. Correct. He takes the money, makes his transaction. Somebody else comes and buys something. Maybe they get that money in change. change. Just think about that. I mean, just something that simple. You know, bathroom handles, you know, the, the, the bathroom doors. Um, Boy, you're, you're getting my evil genius brain going. Yeah, if I wanted to spread a disease, I would just get a couple hundred thousand dollars in singles and impregnate the bills. Yeah, man. I mean, this is how, that, that's how my head works, Jack. So Yeah. I'm, I'm just saying, you know, then you, how do you distribute it then? You just throw it on the street. I'm gonna say you go into people will uh, pick it up. I I bet you, right? Anybody that doubts that, here's an experiment. Go out and as much money as you want to blow on the experiment, fifty, a hundred, whatever, in, in singles, and just just throw it out in the wind on the street and see how long it takes for people to pick it up. Oh, I tell you what, I have been driving down the interstate before and literally seen money blowing down <laughs> the road, and I have stopped picking up. <laughs> I'm talking, I found $140 blowing down the interstate wow. one time. Wow. Okay, I got a great money story for you. It's not really <laughs> what we're talking about, but it's, it's kind of funny. It was one of the best experiences of our vacation. So we were in Florida, and Doc Bones and Nurse Amy came out and hung out with us for a few days. And uh, Doc had about 200 bucks in random bills in his pocket and still decided to go in the water at the beach. Oh, no. And then ploop. All of a sudden, the money comes out in the turbid, rough ocean. Oh, yeah. We found $188 of it. Are you serious? We, and we found, we found some of it, like, right, like everybody like, started like, feeling with their feet, and we found some right away. But we found most of it washed up to shore. We were walking up and down the beach, and everybody was looking for shells, and we were looking for money. <laughs> we tried to talk them into throwing it back in the water again because it was so much fun. But he didn't want to. He didn't want to do that. It was yeah. It was so much fun for you. It's all about perspective, Jack. Yeah. <laughs> we gave him all his money back, but it was just like I couldn't believe how much of it we found. Yeah. And people were looking at us like we're crazy because like I found what I found when they were looking like. You know, what kind of seashells do you got around? This was a five, and Dorothy's like, I got a 20. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go to that beach. <laughs> so so um, you also have been approached by some kind of TV show or something? Yeah, and uh, I'm unsure of this. Um, I've been approached by a production company that does uh, is, is do, getting ready to do a show for History Channel. Okay. And it's another one of these survival shows, but it's a little different take. Um what they want to do is they want to have five or six people who are experienced in survivalism, as they call it, not really what they're trying to do, but that's what they're calling it, to be dropped in the woods with only what you can carry. And essentially it will be a last man standing. See who can stay the longest. Hmm. And they think that this can go up to a year. Um, I've told them I don't think a year is at all possible. Um Ed, uh, Ed, what's his name? He tried it up. The British guy, Ed, something or another, tried it up in Alaska or in Canada in mm-hmm. 2007. He only made it 53 days, and yeah. he had a hell of a lot more than he could carry. Hmm. I mean, he had a lot more than he could carry. I think duration will depend on location, and, and what I mean by that is you, you can set me off in the northern swamps of Florida unless I get bit by something or sick. Um, you come back in 30 days, and I'll gain weight. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. You, right, you, you, I'll eat good. You put me in a swamp, man. I'm going to get fat on turtles and snakes. And you, you, you go northern climate uh, it, with seasonality changes and sparser resources. And, man, I think you might be looking at less than a month for most people. Well, and that's where they're looking. They're looking up in the, the Rockies. Oh. Um, and, and, you know, and I tried to tell them, I said, look, what you're wanting to do, I said, we I said, one person, I couldn't carry my summer and winter clothing yeah. alone, you know, like that, and go in. I couldn't go in, you know, and say August, but carry all my winter stuff that I'm going to need because you got to think, you know, not just the, the snow boots and the gloves and the thermals and all that, but the snow shoes you're going to need up there. You're not going to be, you know, well, yeah, you can make snowshoes. <laughs> but it's not like having a pair of L.L. Bean snowshoes attached. Well, to and you know what the, the Hollywood moron will say is, well, okay, see, well, the Indians lived there. No, the Indians freaking left. And that's, right? that's what I told they, them. They too. were nomadic. They had community. They stored up resources. They worked together, and they moved based on seasonality. They might have moved up into the upper elevations in the fat of the summer to harvest and utilize things, but when winter came, they went away from there, and they went to places that were more sheltered and warm. Yeah. And if you're just going to drop a guy off and say, okay, well, here's your 20 acres, yeah. it's well, not and, and like realistic. You said, they, they lived as a tribe. It yeah. wasn't It wasn't one guy. One, and a lot of them died. That's another thing. All, this, all the romanticism about Native American culture, and even before we gave them all the diseases that we brought over here, and we did, yep. um, a lot of them died. I, I don't think we get how many people, even in Europe and in, 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 in uh, Asia, just like died. Well, and, and we hear all the time when they're, when they're doing these digs and they're, and they're digging up the skeletons of these people, they talk about the hard life they lived, the number of breaks, of broken bones, um, of the, the arthritic joints that they find in these poor people, because they lived a hard-ass life. Yeah. You know? and, and, I, and, I've, and I've been talking to them quite a while about this now. And, uh, you do, they want you, do they want you to do this? Yeah, they want me to go do you it. You want you to go? Yeah, they want me I to go. I ain't going. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know that I'm going to. It's, it's an interesting offer, and I'm playing it out to see... What I've told them is I need to hear the final scenario because I've got some major questions. Number one, is there going to be any concession made in hunting regulations for us? Are you guys working with the states you're talking about to do this? I said, because, you know, if someone goes to do this, they're not going to live on squirrels and rabbits. It's not going to happen. Mm -mm. They've got to have the ability to hunt whatever the hell they can find. Mm -hmm. You know, I said, if there's a herd of 20 elk down in the valley below me and I can't take one because I don't have an elk tag, they might as well not be there. And it's an unfair position to put somebody in and expecting them to try to pull off what you want them to pull off. You know, you've got to be able to hunt anything you can hunt. Um, and I want to hear the final scenario. You know, they, they're saying a they year. They could do what Mythbusters did, right? So Mythbusters, they had them on an island. Did you see the one with the duct tape? Yeah, the duct tape one, yeah. They had to survive the island, and when they proved they could catch the chicken, they gave them KFC. Yeah. So they yeah. didn't have to kill the chicken, because there were wild chickens on the island. Yeah, I, well, I'd have killed the chicken. I'd have ate that wild chicken. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, you know, um, a way around that might be uh, you could carry a rifle, and I, if you're telling me I can take what I can carry, I'm taking a rifle, and you might rig the rifle up with a, a photoscope that shows that, yeah, I would have hit, you know, pull, when I pulled the trigger, I would have hit this animal, you know, center mass. Okay, well, here's, it was a 700-pound elk, here's a 700-pound cow, <laughs> it's dead, it's got guts in it, and all good luck with it. 
I guess that would be kind of a workaround because the game departments, I've actually heard of in some of these situations, actors, if you want to lack for a better word for them, in trouble over oh, yeah. certain violations because of things like this. After, yeah, after the fact, the, you know, and and that's the other thing. I don't trust it. If they say, oh, yeah, yeah, if you see elk, you can kill elk. I'm going to be like, well, I want a letter you better from the give state me a letter from the whatever state game department and – it, and when it comes to any type of game that's under federal regulations, like a freaking dove, by the way, is a yeah. federal migratory or, or bird, a duck, or a know. duck, then you better have a letter from the federal government, and it better be every branch that could prosecute for it, not just one. And the kicker to it too is, you have to self-film it all. Oh, bull! You have well, to like less crowd for everyone, right? Less crowd for everybody. Well, if you're going to make it a year, you're going to have to have resupply just for freaking batteries and battery yeah. capacity. And that's what they said. They said they'll figure out how to drop off tape and batteries, and they're still working out the locations and they're still working out details. Um, it's a neat thing to think about. It's, it's a neat idea. I think it can work differently. But my my show, if I was going to do a show like this, would be based on a group dynamic, and you would have to make allowances, whether you did it by, you know, I can think of game preserves in Texas that have, you know, 20,000 acres. Oh, yeah, with and, exotics and on there. And the guy a couple yeah. million bucks for to film for a year and say, hey, they're going to eat whatever they need to eat, and that could work because then there's no regulations to get in the way or something like that, but... um I think it would be a much more realistic scenario to say, okay, you guys got to figure it out. And I don't care if the guy on the camera is eating a ham salad sandwich as long as the, the actors can't get it. Yeah, and what I did, too, is I had to go out and film. I went out for a weekend and filmed a whole bunch of stuff, like uh-huh. making traps and just all kinds of stuff, talking about wild edible plants. And 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 to try to, to drive my point home to them, I made a pencil snare set. So I'd set this pencil snare. It was, it was a great little set. And I filmed it, setting it up, and showed them the little trail and how I found the little game trail and everything and talked about that. And I did it in North Carolina. Well, nothing was in season at the time. Yeah. Plus, trapping is a whole other thing that, you know, you come Different set of regulations. Way yeah. different set of regulations. So what I did is I had brought with me a Cornish game hen. Okay. And so when I went back to the – I went, you know, after filming that, I, you know, shut the camera off and, and went and did some other stuff. I came back later and took that Cornish game hen – you know, set this trap off and then hung the hen in it. And when I came back to it, you know, I, I, you know, I did it kind of funny saying, oh, look, uh, you know, we got something and uh, the <laughs> snare set so hard it jerked the feathers right off of that bird, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, but then I got down in front of the camera to make a point that yeah. there's nothing in season in this state right now. Yeah. Trapping regulations are an entirely different animal altogether aside from hunting regulations. And this is the problem you're going to face in doing this. And there's 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 a real problem there. For, I'll give you a for instance why I mentioned doves. So I have this method of trapping pigeons, but I don't have a lot of pigeons around here to demonstrate it with. We used to use this. My uncle was a a, a guy that kept pigeons, right? I don't know if there's a word for that, but he was a pigeon guy. Yeah. And he taught me how to build this trap when I was a kid. It's basically you build a box surrounded with chicken wire and an open bottom, and across the top you build a grid of wires about one one in, or about six inches square, which also happens to be about the exact size of the grids of a cattle panel. Yeah. So it's like, well, I'll demonstrate how this works. So I have like hundreds of doves that eat seeds in my backyard every day, and. I figured I'll just take my chicken tractor, and instead of pallets, I'll throw the, a cattle panel on there and demonstrate that it works, and then 
free the dubs, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I started thinking, well, wait a minute, if I'm going to put this on YouTube, am I breaking the law even if I don't kill or harm the birds? Absolutely, molesting wildlife. Right, so I contact the game department of the state of Texas, and their answer was, we probably wouldn't do anything, but as their dubs, they fall also under the federal government's jurisdiction, so you may want to check with them, at which time I decided I just won't demonstrate how this works. Yeah, you don't even want to right? And I had no intention of killing them, but I, my point was, in a post-collapse scenario, instead of catching one, you can catch hundreds at one time. And I know this works, and I could take this to a bridge somewhere where pigeons are and what have you, and I can tell you, you end up with songbirds in there, but I sure wouldn't want to video that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because that's the, like you're saying. You, the, some of these people that go on these shows, everything's videotaped. There's mountains of evidence against you. There's no way out of it. Yeah. And if you just take these producers' words for it, they want a they want a cool show. That's all they care about. They don't care about you. Yeah. They don't care about the legal ramifications of what you do because that's your problem as far as they're concerned. And I won't say how I know this, but I know on some shows when you see animals killed or trapped. They're actually brought in for that very reason. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, I can know, think of a few of the prime examples of that one. Believe me, if so. there's a if there's a protected species that's hunted under tags, the animal was taken under somebody else's tag and then sold to the producers of the show to avoid. And then people come down on the participant in the show. Well, it's not real. Well, it's as real as they could make it without going to prison. Exactly. Because right? I don't want to go to prison. Uh, for teaching something. And I can tell you that it's not like nobody pays attention. So, for instance, I don't know if you know who Frank Belcastro is. Yeah. Okay, from Apocalypse PA, and now it's Independence yep. USA on Glenn Beck's show. Yep. So when they did a pilot for that that was on Discovery or History or whatever, they made moonshine. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they cracked the corn using an old lawnmower with a hole in the deck and everything. Yep. And they put that show out. And then, like, you know, it was like two years before Glenn Beck picked it up. Right before Glenn and the network decided not to go forward, for about a year, nothing happened. Then one day, oh yeah, it's about a year after the thing airs, the guy at his front door from the BATF, and he says, Mr. Belcastro, what you did is technically a felony, but we understand why, and we have no intention of prosecuting you. We do want you to know you've been under surveillance for a year to make sure it was only for educational purposes and only on the show, and you really need to not ever do it again. Holy crap. <laughs> well, that's protecting our right. That's protecting us, right, Chris? Oh, yeah, that, yeah. It's that is our, protecting us. It's for yeah. our own good. It's always was, for our own good. Um, and, and that makes me wonder, you know that show Moonshiners, how the hell that show, that's got to be all staged. And not not because people don't really do those things, but because there's no way you don't have people going to prison if that show is genuine. Especially when one of the guys is well-known in the town because he's a firefighter there and everything. That's the, the, the main guy. The, yeah, the, the that, went, that went legit. And I think yeah. he was always legit. I think he probably always had that license in yeah. his pocket, and that was the only way he could do that. Or they, you know, they went in and they looked for characters to do this that had a lineage of moonshine, and they got a license for production on the show, and then everything staged. It's got to be something like that because... All of those guys, their faces are shown, their names are given, what have you, and uh, I don't think that that they, that, you know, they kind of mess around when it comes to that, uh, as far as being willing to enforce the law. Oh no, so that I, makes you just question all the shows that you see. Well, I think Doomsday Preppers has been the best example of that. Look at the numbers of people that have been arrested, or had their weapons confiscated, 
or what have you as a result of that show. Yeah, that was the powder keg from the beginning, and it made us look stupid. I, I, I'll tell you, there is no group of people that I have said F off more to and actually said the word than the producers of that show. Yeah, they were in. I know you didn't go to the last uh, Self Reliance Expo in uh, yeah. in Dallas. I was there. Their booth was right beside mine. And I'm sorry. They, yeah, they, <laughs> people were lining up, man. And the girl kept just pestering me and pestering me and pestering mm. me. And finally, I said, "Look, there is no way in hell, yeah, I would let you guys film anything about me or be on your show." And uh, a good buddy of mine, Todd, was with me, and uh, he gave that girl so much hell. The entire time, because he asked her, he's like, so are you a prepper? And she's like, well, no, I live in New York City, and I really can't prep. And he's like, well, sure you can. There's lots of things you can do. Yeah. And then he's like, so this is just a gimmick to you guys, huh? You just want to make people look like assholes and, you know, and this and that. <laughs> it was just so funny. I mean, he gave her mortal hell the whole time to finally she moved. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's how, they, I mean, we had, we were right next to them at an expo I did, and um, I'm, uh, this girl says, so we're coming to your house. I said, the hell you are. She goes, well, your wife said that we could. What? And I heard Dorothy use the F word for like, I've heard her maybe do that three times in my whole existence. <laughs> and it was, you are an effing liar. She was enraged. Oh, my God. Because basically what they had done is they said, you know, we'd like to profile your husband and come out and see your property. And, all. and what she said is, well, you'll have to talk to him about that. Knowing full well that I was happy to tell him to, to saw it off, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and that turned into your wife said we could. Wow. And that's why I just don't I don't trust any of these people. I, and I don't have I don't have a lot of trust for them either. Like I said, I'm playing this out to see where it goes. Um, I'd watch that. I mean, I would say this at least for that show. I I do not watch Doomsday Preppers. I watched like a couple episodes of it, and I'm like, I can't. I, it's like I even feel an obligation because of my industry to watch it, and I I can't do it. That show I would I would be interested in watching. I just see it going down in a, a, a kind of a blaze of glory on the timeline, especially if you're going to do a northwestern state, and if you're going to, especially if you're going to insert early spring or late fall. And that's what they're right now. And and this is why I'm curious. There's so many unanswered questions at this stage. They're talking about starting shooting in July or August. We're talking, you know, it's right around the corner. Yeah. And they don't have the location nailed down yet. They don't have any of my questions no. yet. No. Uh, and and, uh, and and it just it makes me nervous, you know. Yeah. Um, and I've asked about like the insertion method. I'm like, well, how are we going to be inserted by helicopter? Are we going to you going to drive us in, drop us off? Are we got to walk to wherever the hell we're going. How are you doing it? Well, we haven't figured that out yet either because, you know, if they're going to fly me in by helicopter and drop me off someplace, and the deal is it's only what I can carry. Yeah. Well, I'm going to have a backpack that has to be put on the helicopter with a forklift. <laughs> Because when they set me down, I'm going to roll that thing off the helicopter. I'll film the helicopter flying away. I'll open that pack up, dump half that crap on the ground, put my pack on, go find my camp, come back and get the rest of my junk. And for safety, they're going to have to come some kind of an extraction program and constant communication because um, being a last man standing thing, when somebody's like, well, I've had enough of this shit, they have to have a way to say, okay, I'm done. Yeah, they're they're going to be giving out those little... GPS like spot emergency beacon thing. Oh, and they never fail. Yeah, they never they never fail. And and they say they'll have a medic. On I'd have standby. to have six of those. Yeah, and, <laughs> and they say they'll have a medic on standby for medical emergencies. But yeah, where are they standing by? How far away are they? You know, you, I, I just 
the logistics, there's a lot of concerns there for me. So, I, I'm, like I said, I want to hear the final scenario. I want to hear what the final offer is, and then I'll think about it. Um, think about it, yeah. It's, it's cool to, you know, for, for them to ask and for the offer to be yeah. made. But uh, Actually, I think the concept itself could be an interesting show. It's just the, 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 the total details could be probably better, and there is a huge legal concern there. That's well, and, and two, for me, the, the downside is I'm a writer. I write books. So, yeah, man, if you do this thing, are they going to drop you off with a laptop so you can do all your writing and a satellite Internet connection so you can do your research so you can continue on with uh, writing, or are you going to have to take a sabbatical from uh, being angry? Well, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to take a sabbatical, man. I'd like to be able to stay in touch with my audience. I'm sure they're not going to want me to do that, but um, I've been looking into the fine products uh, by Iridium <laughs> satellite folks, so uh, maybe what they don't know won't hurt me. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you want, for folks that maybe want to check out your books, Chris, you want to tell people how they can get copies of them. Yeah, they're they're available in all the bookstores. That's one of the advantages of uh, going with a traditional publisher. Um, one of the few advantages of it, um, the, the very few, um, is you do get in all the bookstores. So it's in all the bookstores. Um, they're on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, any place like that. Every e-reader format. Um, all the books are also in audio format, which is really popular. A lot of people like those. Um, you can get those on Audible.com, and uh, so yeah, they're they're. Pretty easy to find. They're available about everywhere. Very cool, man. Well, hey, I appreciate you being with us today, and stay in touch with us on this uh, potential, if uh, you know, of this uh, this reality TV show and, uh, and where it goes, because I'd like to know more about it. Yeah, as I get some updates, I'll let you know. One of the, one of the things I asked them too was, is this going to air while we're out there, or is it? Are they going to want to film it all, come back, do like the post production thing, and then do it? Because then you know you could be talking years away before you ever see this thing. That's yeah. something they're working on too. So we'll see if it's um, if in the end the offer is right. Um, there's also supposed to be some money involved too, of course. Um, and if all this stuff's right, then then I may do it. I don't think I know. I don't won't last a year out there. I don't imagine I would be able to pull that off. Probably. I mean, I'm I'm pretty good, but I don't think I'm that good. Um, but I'll give it a shot. And and to me, for our audience, some of your audience, we hear this all the time. I'm gonna grab my bag and bug out. I'm heading for the woods. Well, yeah. I'll be able to come back and tell them. <laughs> yeah, this is what you're in for, you know. <laughs> you ain't going to do it. <laughs> Very cool, man. Well, hey, man, I appreciate you being with us today, Chris. Yeah, thanks a lot, Jack. I'm, I always like being on, uh, and uh, I love your show, man. I listen I listen every day. You're, you know, your podcast and uh, or my mower time, usually. I listen to a couple shows when I'm mowing and stuff because i got a couple acres, and I always like to listen. I like your Oh, and Tim Glantz told me to tell you hi too. I saw him. Oh, cool. Again, man. Yeah, I bought some bought some goodies from Tim, and uh, we were at a little event together, and uh, he told me to tell you hi. Very cool, man. So. Well, with that, man. Uh, again, I appreciate you being with us, and folks, I'll just say with that, this has been Jack Spierko, along with Chris, the Angry American, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this 
Yeah.